Hello, my name is John Kime, and you're listening to the Political Mind Podcast. The title of this episode is Presidential Overreach, Season 1, Episode 11. Hey guys, and welcome back to a new episode of the Political Mind Podcast. So that was my new intro. I'm not sure if I like it or not yet. That's still a thing that I'm thinking about while uploading this, but I am making a new one just because um, for ease of use and stuff like that and um, familiarity instead of always changing up my intros. But um, for now, that's my temporary intro. So hopefully you guys like it or not. Please let me know. Um, But anyway, today's topic is presidential overreach. And um, we're going to go over a historical factor and see um, what this particular Supreme Court case did for presidential power and stuff like that and what it restricted and how that implicates to today's political powers. So today's Supreme Court case that we're going over is Youngstown Sheet and Tube um, Company versus Sawyer. Basic overview of why I'm doing this is because I literally thought about it the other day and I'm like, man, you know what? This is what I should do for my next episode because I went to Ashbrook, which we, well, in Ashbrook Academy, I should um, label because I'm still not in college yet, but I went there for one of their academies in the end of July of 2022, and I went to a Supreme Court case class, and we went over this as our final exam because every Friday um, when you're there, you have a final exam, and this was our topic for that exam. The basic goal was we were, I guess it was kind of like a role play thing, and we were um, the advisor to President Truman, which in this case was real, but we had to figure out whether it was constitutional or not for him to take over the sheet companies, the sheet and tube companies, um, during the Korean War, if it was, um, in his power to be able to do that. So we had to come up with this idea and within three hours. So it was kind of stressful, but it was good though, because this honestly, by doing that, it was what it became one of my favorite cases in the Supreme Court and what they've done so far. So I was like, I haven't discussed this yet. You know, this is one of my favorite cases and I haven't discussed it yet. So that's what I'm doing today. And I think a lot of people will find this very relevant to today's topics as well, considering everything that happened during COVID-19 and overreach and stuff like that, what people are talking about. But um, yeah, I guess let's get into it. Let's see what they came up with back in 1952. Okay, so before we start, I needed to mention that this was a very divided subject back then in 1952, and um, I just wanted to preference that because there was two sides of this argument. One was the labor movement and saying that, okay, well, uh, we need more money because we need to work and we're being um, under, we're being treated wrongly and stuff like this, where the other side says, okay, we couldn't have won unless we would have had this sheet and tube and um, materials to be able to for the military. So I just wanted to preference that before I continue any further into the case, because I know there's probably different sides of the argument that will agree or disagree with this, um, I guess, outcome. So let me read this article. And as we continue down each section of the historical factor and stuff like that, I will, I guess, debrief of what that means. But let's start off with the first section of this. And it says, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer, 343 U.S. 579, 1952, which is the case number for this, obviously. And this is also commonly referred to as Steel Seizure Case or the Youngstown Steel Case was a landmark United States Supreme Court decision that limited the power of the President of the United States to seize a private property. The case served as a check on the most far-reaching claims of executive power and at the time was signaled the court 
the court's increased willingness to intervene in political questions. So basically, this was just putting the question up for debate, like, does the president have enough power to seize personal and private property? Well, in this decision and in this court case, they say no. But let's continue reading further and see what the rest of this article says. So here's some historical context on this. In the midst of the Korean War, the United States Workers of America threatened to strike for higher wages against the major steel producers in, in the United States. As a result of this, um, Harry S. Truman, President Harry S. Truman, believed that the strike of any length would cause severe desolations for defense contractors, um, for the military, for everything, obviously, during the Korean War, and keeping the current operating management of the companies in place to run the plants under federal direction is what he wanted. He didn't want to keep it the way it was going because obviously they were wanting higher wages. And like said earlier, he was afraid that if he would leave it the way it was going and the path and direction it was heading towards, it would have been detrimental to the military because the military needed these resources to be able to continue fighting over in Korea. And if they wouldn't have had these, I don't know where they would be right now. Or that was at least President Harry Truman's belief. Now, this is the surprising part of this whole entire thing. You don't expect these people to believe it and be able to like support it, but the people who are protesting, the protesters, the people who wanted higher wages, actually supported this move from Harry Truman because of it was taking it away from the original authority of the steel companies. And that's what made the steel companies, the people who own these steel companies, to eventually sue um, President Truman because of his move and saying that it was out of his reach and out of his power. And immediately after he seized the steel companies, um, they started, the steel companies reacted immediately by sending attorneys to the home of Judge Walter M. Basin of the D.C. District Court within 30 minutes of the end of the president's speech to ask for insurance of temporary restraining order. And Judge Basin scheduled a hearing for 1130 the next day to hear the arguments on the motion. That was how quick the steel companies were there. They're like, bam, we're here. We're going to take it over. We're not going to deal with this from the president to be able to take over our companies. My personal guess is they knew it was coming. They figured this is probably what's going to happen just because of the politics and stuff behind it. So, yeah, I guess that's up to personal interpretation, but that's my idea. So after that, it eventually went on to multiple different judges. Multiple judges were like, okay, we'll take the case. And then later on, they were like, okay, never mind. Let's pass it on to this next person and they'll take the case. And it was kind of going like this for quite a few days. And eventually they came to like circuit courts. And then like it, it went from local courts to circuit courts to the Supreme Court. Um, all within, I believe it was like 30 days or something like that. So it took quite a while to get up there, but it, it eventually did get up there. And um, yeah, it spent quite a long time in the Supreme Court itself because obviously you have to convince nine other justices to support your claim. But it was, um, let me read some of the arguments and some of the, I guess, background on the, like the proceedings and stuff like that and how it ended up, like what their majority opinion and the concurring opinions were, the dissenting opinions and the aftermath. So for the majority opinion, which was the five justices, it was led by Justice Black. Um, he wrote uh, for the majority opinion that was delivered exactly three weeks after the oral hearing on June 2nd. So this was after it got to the Supreme Court. So that was only that was three weeks that I spent in the Supreme Court. So it's probably actually longer than 30 days, but that was my guess. So Justice Black, as often as he did, took an absolute view um, by holding that the president had no power to act except in those cases that are expressly or implicitly 
authorized by the Constitution or an act of Congress. Black wrote that the president's role in lawmaking is solely to recommend or veto laws. He cannot overtake Congress's role to create new laws. So in this instance, we see, like I kind of talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the separation of powers, Black solely focused um, on this, and he was like, okay, no, you can't do Congress's job. You can only veto, and you can accept um, accept bills, I guess, from Congress, but you can't make new laws, and you can't do Congress's job just as one person. Now, the concurring opinions, or the people who thought that this was right and for the president, was it was in his own right to do this, Every single one of them actually wrote their own opinion instead of having just one justice write it for them. So let me read to you the summary of some of these, and some, one of these are short, so I'll read to you um, his opinion right now. The opinion of William O. Douglas. Douglas took a similar absolute approach to the president's assertion that insurance power to cope with a national emergency, basically saying that he believed this was a national emergency and it was only in his power that the president would be able to do this in the case of a national emergency. And for a short summary, this is what most of the concurring opinions believed, so that's just a sum up of all of them. But yes, all of them did write separate concurring opinions, so if you have extra time, read those, because there is one that had separate points to why he believed what he did, um, and w in what cases this should be supported. So yeah, I mean, if you have extra time, read it, because I, I mean, you might believe like a different opinion, I guess. So now you're probably wondering, what was the aftermath? What happened after he figured out the news? Within minutes of the court's ruling, Truman ordered the Commerce Secretary, Charles Sawyer, to return the steel mills to their owners. Literally minutes afterwards, and he did it immediately. Then, shortly after, the steel workers went out on a strike, and, it was, and the strike lasted for 50 days until President um, Truman threatened to use the somewhat cobblestone procedures under the Selective Service Act to seize the mills once again. But believe it or not, Truman was still stunned by the decision. He figured that the Supreme Court would go on his side, on Sawyer's side, because he figured that, well, it was in his whole justification to be able to do this. But, um, and there's proof for this as well in his memoirs that he wrote. And uh, yeah, it was kind of surprising to see that he would think that it would go in his case, even though separation of powers, <laughs> to simply put it. So that was the basic rundown of Youngtown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Um, I definitely do enjoy this case. It's definitely something that I believe is very beneficial to know because of the period of time we're living in currently. But honestly, if you have any more questions or if you have any ideas on what you still want to continue reading about this, there's more information online if you want to read about them because there's a lot more cases that relate to the kind of the same thing. So yeah, I mean, it's a, it, the internet is out there, you know, and you can always search more stuff out there if you need to and if you want to. So thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Political Mind Podcast. I can't wait to see you guys next week where we're going to discuss a new topic about history and politics. See you then.